You know, every summer, uh, uh, thousands of people gather for an event called uh, Walk for Life in Cedar Rapids through Bridgehaven. Uh, it's known as In Her Shoes or In Her Steps. And, uh, and it and it's, has a couple-fold purpose. One is to, to raise awareness uh, for the value and the sanctity of every human life. Uh, it's intended to help raise funds for the ministries that carry out that vision, cast that vision, uh, and love uh, as parachurch organizations and, and love those who uh, may find themselves in a situation they're, they're, they didn't plan on being in for, for any, you know, any, any of many reasons. Uh, and so, but there's a neat thing that happens when you pull up to one of these walks. If you plan to go to one and you plan to participate in it by walking, right? You can also donate to those who are walking. But if you're walking, you, 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 there's an expectation that something uh, valuable uh, to the Lord and to you, that something important is happening. And you know that you're going to be around a whole bunch of people that you don't necessarily know. And so there's an anticipation that builds as you, as you travel to, say, your parking lot uh, where you're going to park the car before you get out and walk. And what's neat about it is you, you drive to that parking lot, you pull up, you park your car, and then you get out of your car. And as you do, you begin to see maybe some people that you recognize and you smile and say hello to, but you also find others that you don't recognize. And you get out of the car with this anticipation that I'm driving to this event of people that I don't know, but they're my people, right? They're my people. Why? Well, because we care about the same uh, goal that the Lord has to, to highlight the value and the sanctity of life, to love those who have not been born by loving those who uh, are considering uh, an abortion or aren't sure what to do. Or like I said, it's, it's varied and that's not the main purpose of it all. But the, per- the, 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 the point for this morning is you pull up, you get out and you're smiling at strangers, because you're pulled together by this unified cause. And so you get out right out of the gates with a big smile and you're saying, hey, good morning. You you don't have to ask a whole lot of questions about who they are. You're really not even concerned about the rest of their life as much as saying, "Uh, hey, we're here together for the same thing. You're my people and I'm your people. And you know, that's similar to what Paul is communicating to us as he talks about unity in the body of Christ. We have all kinds of things going out on our daily lives uh, from, from day to day throughout the week. And we come together, whether it's in this church facility or whether we uh, see each other in the store or you know, whatever we're doing, or we gather together throughout the week, we get together and we say, we smile and we say, hey, these are my people because these are God's people. And that's the the heart of what Paul is communicating as we begin to move into this next section of Ephesians. Uh, Previously, he has spent the first three chapters, we call them chapters, he was just writing a letter, right? So the first half of his letter, which we call the first three chapters of Ephesians, he's developing the, the, the rationale or the reason for the unity and the hope that we have in Christ. And then he unfolds the wonderful works of the Lord, right? We'll come to that slide that's on the screen here in a minute. But he, he, he talks the fact that God, it, it, he's exalting God's glorious purpose in creating, calling, and redeeming us in Christ. He's given a shared vision to live to the praise of God's glorious grace, which we see uh, as we see God unite everything in creation and in the heavens in Christ. We're all brought together in Christ, and that's the vision for everything that we do. He's developed, he's bolstered our confidence that God will see us through to the end. We don't have to wonder about whether we have the power to accomplish the, thing that God, the things that God has called us 
to. We know that we have the power in Christ because we are sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. He prays for them and for us by extension, not once, but twice he prays for them, that they would understand these realities that are beyond our understanding, that, that, that God would open the eyes of our heart to understand the things that he's getting ready to teach them. He's given us this confident expectation that by showing that we were dead in our sins, God, through his rich mercy, has made us alive. Both Jew and Gentile. Kids, you remember the song, right? Uh, Red and yellow, black and white, they are precious in his sight. Jesus loves the little children and old people of the world. (laughs) He's shown that his suffering has encouraged us not to lose heart. Because remember, he's writing from prison. So he's writing as a guy who's gone through it before. You ever had somebody try to give you some encouragement? He might respond with something like, well, you've never gone through what I've gone through. Paul could be like, yeah, I have. In fact, I'm still there. God carved out time out of my schedule, out of my travels, to write you this incredible letter. And all of this roots us and it grounds us in the love of the Father and the Son and the Spirit, one God and three persons, who is able to do, this is how he ends that section of the letter, who is able to do far more abundantly than all we can ask or think. How? According to his power at work within us through the Holy Spirit. And all of this motivates us to give God the glory. So as we strive to live for Christ and we see God enabling that, we say, wow, Lord, I know that's not from me. Because I know that when I'm leaning on my own devices, I know what it looks like. But when this God fruit happens, when I see your fingerprints in my life, I know that this is from you. And so here's that slide now. Paul labors in love to show us what it means to be in Christ so that we eagerly welcome what God demands of us as we walk in him. And that's what chapters four, five, and six, Paul begins to unfold. And so as we give careful and and reverent and prayerful consideration to this reality, the, the message of the gospel, when we apply it, will change our lives. Head knowledge unapplied doesn't do anything. But knowledge, when believed in our hearts and then walked out in our daily living, is life-changing for us and those around us. Kent Hughes said, it's not so much a matter of, or a question of what we will do with this letter, but what this letter will do to us. And so Paul, as he's trying to communicate this, and it's one of the things I love about reading Paul, he starts talking about one thing that he wants to teach, and then he gets so excited about God that he just begins rattling off all of these wonderful attributes of God. He digs deeply into his war chest of encouragement and exhortation to call us to walk with a new skip in our step, if you will, together, not simply as individuals seeking to preserve the unity of the Spirit through unity and diversity that becomes his focus for the church uh, and and for us. What you're going to see in the first six verses is how God has made us one unit. And, And then next week we'll begin to see that there is unity through diversity. But here we're talking about simply the unity that we have in Christ and how God has called us to live. And then we begin next week to see that that through our diversity as individuals, God's still calling us to pursue unity together. 
And so I'm excited for what the Lord has for us over these next uh, few weeks. So look at with me at Ephesians 4, 1 through 6, where we will see that the lowly, loving walk that preserves unity in the body of Christ is what we are all to pursue. Ephesians 4, 1 through 6, Paul says, I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope that belongs to our call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. I almost called this sermon one, and you might still call it one. What we're going to see today is that in order for us to maintain the unity of the Spirit, we need to understand God's heavenly calling to salvation is a call to eternal hope for holy living, which brings humility to walk worthy of the Lord through the peace which God has supplied. So first, Paul's, this is, we're going to see Paul's exhortation to live or to walk worthy of our heavenly calling to hope. Uh, you've heard me say this before, and I'll keep saying again. This is like how to read your Bible 101. When you see the word, therefore, it's really important to connect because it's the basis for why he's about to say what he's about to say. Uh, I, I've been told recently that I, I use the word, uh, now here's the point, quite a bit. I didn't believe it, so I asked some other people. And they affirmed that apparent truth. But I'm going to ignore it and keep on going. Um, Paul's saying, listen, I've said all of these things, but here's, here's, here's the point. Here's what I'm getting to. Therefore, because of what I've just told you, because of what I've just explained, I, I'm not laying out for you truths of how to live that just come from my own thought process. Because of what God has done for you, because of how God has saved you, because God has brought you together, nations, peoples, races that once uh, de de decried each other, that once uh, called each other names in their speaking of one another, not just in gossip, but as they interacted with one another, would call each other dog, you dog. This is how they, this is the, was the tension between these people groups. And God says, I've broken all of that down. I, I tore down, uh, I destroyed the wall of hostility that would divide you two. So as God makes us one with him, it fleshes out in the way that we are one uh, with one another. We pursue one another. So he intentionally connects what he's about to say uh, to what he, or to what he, yeah, what he's about to say to what he, he has said. And this is an exhortation, right? He says, I, therefore, it's the same pattern he follows in Romans 12, 1 and 2, uh, almost exactly in the beginning of it. He says in Romans uh, 12, 1 and 2, he says, I appeal to you, or I urge you, or I exhort you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies or your life, to present your life as living sacrifices or a living sacrifice, holy, holy. We think of uh, holy as never, ever sinning, but we know those days are a thing of the past, right? And they're a thing of the future too for us in terms of sinning. We're going to sin, but to live holy is to live in a way that's set apart unto the Lord, the Lord would tell the Israelites, I want you to be set apart, uh, removed, distinct from the nations around you. And God is saying to us as Christians, be distinct 
not haughty, not, not thinking of yourselves more highly than you ought, because we know where we came from. But yet when we're in Christ, we're to live in a way that's distinct from those around us, humbly pointing to the Lord the whole time that God would give us glory. So we offer our or present our bodies as a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. And do not be conformed. This is the how of it. Do not be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that by testing, in other words, when the tests of life come, you may discern what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. The work God has already accomplished in us fuels our passion uh, for living for Christ. Sometimes we go after what we see on the surface. You know, uh, I didn't come up with this, but we call it fruit stapling. You know, sometimes we think about our behaviors only rather than what actually motivates our behaviors, right? Uh, Jesus said that it's, it's from out of over, the overflow of the heart that the mouth speaks. In other words, what we believe and think internally is what, is what reveals is, or is revealed by what comes out of our mouth or what comes out in our actions, right? If you've got, if you've got two trees over here, and this is the tree with, with no good fruit, dead fruit, because it's not connected to a healthy root system. There's no nourishing water coming to give it life. But over here, you have a tree with lots of fruit. Sometimes rather than say, hey, let me look at what's going on underneath the surface, or, or rather than looking at what's going on under the surface, our, our belief systems, our worldview different things like that. What we say is, oh, I need that behavior. And so we grab a piece of fruit and we try to staple it onto this dead tree. That's the moment you sever that piece of fruit from that other tree with a, 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 an alive root system that's giving it nourishment, it begins the process of death and decay. And you can staple it there and then it'll start to wither and wilt and get all wrinkly. And right, we know how those things go with age, right? It kind of starts to look a little different than when it did previously. And so we say, oh, I need this other behavior. So we grab a piece of fruit and we staple it to this tree that's not connected to nourishing water. But rather than that, living in that way, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. And the renewal of our mind comes from being in the Word of God, where God speaks as perfect truth to us and shows us how to walk in faith. Paul has credibility because he's writing from prison. So when he challenges us and he says, I, Paul, a prisoner of the Lord, we talked about that last week. He said it just recently, a prisoner of the Lord. It was no no accident why he was in prison. But he says, I, Paul, a prisoner of the Lord. In other words, what I'm about to tell you to do, I'm doing. I'm pursuing the unity of the body and I'm sacrificing my life by living in chains. So I can call you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called because I'm walking in this manner, imperfectly for sure, but I'm walking in this manner. Or Paul might have even said, I'm walking around my my, uh, cell in this manner. I'm living according to what I'm about to tell you. Because if I wanted... My best life now, well, I wouldn't have to go to this city where I know that I'm going to be arrested and eventually killed. But to live for eternity means that I set my mind on what God wants. I'm not conformed to the pattern of the world, but to the pattern of godly living. 
And so he tells us to live uh, lives uh, or to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. He says, I'm going to read four texts really quickly. So, um, but he just lists these passages, or he doesn't list these passages, but he says them else, elsewhere. In, in Colossians 1.10, he says, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleased to him, bearing fruit, you see that, in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. Colossians 2.6, therefore, as you have received Jesus Christ the Lord, so walk in him. 1 Thessalonians 2.12, we exhorted or, or we strongly urged you toward a particular particular uh, end, and we exhorted each one of you, and we encouraged you, and we charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God, who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. Philippians 1.27, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come to see you or I'm absent, I may hear of you that you, are, that you are standing firm in one spirit, striving with one mind, side by side, for the faith of the gospel. And so here he uses the word walk metaphorically. Sometimes it's literal, but here he's using it metaphorically to refer to our lifestyle, right? We're, we're to walk or we're to live or we're to conduct ourselves according to the pattern of life that the Lord tells us, which we know because we're not conformed to the pattern of this world, but we're new by the, renewed by the transforming of our mind. Literally, it means to, to walk worthily or suitably. It means to... Uh, to bring the other side of the scales to balance based on the content of what we know is true for who God is and how he's called us to live. So your first application this morning may be to consider whether you've been called by God and responded in salvation, which is simple. Repent of sitting on the throne of your own heart, believing the gospel that God sent his only son into the world, that whoever would believe in him would be saved, would not perish, but, but would have eternal life. So we repent. We turn away from sin. We do a 180 by God's power, turning to the Lord and believing the gospel. And when we repent and would believe, we bring a third component in that makes up a little, kind of a little triangle, if you will, of, of striving, walking out that which God has worked in us. And so you may need to consider whether everything you're doing for the Lord or everything you're doing uh, that you sort of portray is for the Lord is really for the Lord or some hidden inner uh, motive for your own self-esteem. The idea that, that religion would save you, the idea that, that just following these actions would save you. Right? You can follow a roadmap and get to your destination, but that's not the same with, with Christianity. There are a lot of religions out there where they're trying to follow a roadmap to get to heaven. But Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except by me. And see, if you think that you're getting to the Lord through your actions, it's it's really going to be miserable eventually. You're going to struggle day in and day out with why you're not being able to continue doing the things that you know you ought to be doing, or you're going to struggle with motivation, or when somebody in the church challenges you out of love uh, for your pattern of living or anything like that, you're going to resent them. You're going to be hateful toward them. It might come out, anger expressed that, that pours out, or you might bottle it up. You might keep it inside. We're pretty good actors, actresses. And so that's our first application this morning is to say, you know, am I striving to live for the Lord or am I living for myself with a veneer of living for the Lord? And you'll know 
because the Spirit of God is kind to show us. But we don't want to do what the Romans, what Paul said to the Romans, that we suppress the truth in unrighteousness. That's a miserable way to live. Welcome it. Welcome Him. When God calls each child for His purposes, we welcome this great commitment that is impossible on our own. And we say, yes, Lord, I will strive to walk in a manner that is worthy of you. We're not saying, well, nobody's perfect. And what we say kind of in the invisible ink is, uh, nobody's perfect, therefore I don't really have to give it all my effort. Right? Paul says, work out a spiritual sweat. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. So then like a good coach, Paul shows the characteristics of what this lowly loving walk is. Ephesians 1, 2, and 3, or I'm sorry, 4, 2, and 3. I think I might even have that wrong on the slide there. Uh, I do. It's chapter 4, 2, and 3, which is where we're in today. Um, don't miss this plural union of what the Lord is calling us to, what, what Paul is talking about, right? Um, he says, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of calling to which you have been called. Remember, this entire letter so far, he's been talking about you uh, Gentiles and, and, and how God has brought Jew and Gentile together. And so he's speaking to them as a, as a pair, uh, specifically addressing Gentiles here. But Paul, Paul's mission, Paul's calling, which is different than your calling and my calling, is to bring the gospel to the Gentiles so that Jew and Gentile might, might be united because they're united in Christ vertically that they would be united and in peace and in harmony uh, horizontally. So God's purpose is, and I've said this before, that it's like a conduit, right? The, the goal is not to have a conduit with a cap on the end, right? There's times where that's good and helpful, right? You don't want water spewing all over your house. So there's a time when you need a conduit with a cap, but not in Christian living, God has is, God is intended to use us as vessels of his mercy so that it flow, what flows into us flows out of us into the lives of one another. So that's how we're called to live. There's a unity. It's never unity for the sake of unity. It must always be unity for the sake of uh, God's beautiful plan that he's designed for the body of Christ, which makes a watching world walk in and go, you know, I don't know what's happening in here. I don't know what brings these people together, but I know I don't have it in my life. And I know I want it. It makes them inquisitive. And so they want to learn more. Uh, and so he tells us several characteristics here. We are to walk in all humility. All humility. Humility means lowliness of mind. We recognize this well from uh, what Paul says in Philippians 2. Right, that we're, we're to uh, consider others better than ourselves. Right, we have, we have a, a posture of lowliness of our minds. We think of others as better than ourselves. Don't worry, you'll love yourself just fine. Right, well, what if I don't love myself? You, you do. <laughs> it's just always assumed. You do. You love yourself. We guard ourselves in a lot of different ways, but... 
There's nothing half-hearted about this, this manner of our calling, right? We never float toward Christ-likeness. We never float toward humility. Humility is a work of God in our hearts. Humility happens as we, uh, as we saturate our minds and our hearts on the, wo- the wonderful radiance of who God is and what He has done on our behalf. When you, that's, why, that's why the Lord wants us to be in the Word regularly. Why? Well, because if we if we, I heard somebody say, for every one look you take at yourself, take 10 looks at God. Every time you look at yourself, take 10 looks at God. You see God's holiness, and sometimes, and sometimes we turn our head away and we excuse the way we're living because we feel, uh, we feel convicted. Did you know that conviction is actually God's love for you? to help you live in a way that is worthy of the calling to which you've been called. God makes us aware of that in our life, which is not right. But thank God that we're right with Him. We're justified in Christ, but the process of our ongoing, or we call it progressive sanctification, progressively, little by little, moment by moment, being set apart more and more to the Lord, is a work that God does in us, right? Having this, uh, this humility... It's the opposite of pride, which seems obvious enough to say, but in, in this ancient world, it was not a virtue. It wasn't a virtue. Much like in, in many times, it's not, not today. Uh, it, when you were humble, it marks that we're Christ-sufficient, not self-sufficient, right? The, the, the proud person trusts in himself. I got this. I can do this. I don't need the body of Christ. I don't need the Lord. I'm strong. I'm intelligent. I can figure this out on my own. All of that is proud because it's contrary to to the way that the Lord calls us to live. The Lord says, I want you to be in relationship and fellowship with one another. Why? Because we're indispensable in our own growth in Christ. Why? Well, because as God pours into us and others pour into us, we are called to pour into the lives of others. It's a mantra that we have today, right? You've got to believe in yourself. You just have to watch TV for about 30 seconds. Or commercials, actually, it gets more direct, more quick to the point, because they only have 15 seconds or, or 30 seconds to get there, right? But the humble Christian, the, the one who's lowly in mind, trusts in Jesus, and he knows or she knows that if we believe in ourselves, right, then it's just going to be a, a big fail. And we'll go to heaven with far less fruit of life-giving worship than we desire. Now, our salvation is still based solely on the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. But, brother, sister, God does want you to enjoy this life from the context of blessing others with His Word and in ministry. So we're, we're to be... Uh, all humble. The humble person recognizes that God has graciously given him or her certain abilities that we're to use for God's glory and God's purposes. And we'll begin to delve into that more this week. But we need to understand the value and the priority of walking according to the holy calling that we've been called to with all humility, with all gentleness or, or meekness, strength under control. We might be able to topple someone intellectually. We might be able to topple someone with our status or our job or the things that we've accomplished. But you know what? We don't lean into that. 
because it's not about us. It's about the Lord. And so when faced in an, in an argument or, or a confrontation, we don't have to impose ourselves on others. Why? Well, because we know that we're in a conversation that's intended to bring glory to, to the Lord, and I don't have to be the one that controls if this conversation goes the way that I think it needs to go. In fact, I might actually discover that as I sit back in gentleness and in meekness, the Lord will take care of winning the battle. The Lord will take care of, of, of communicating what I can't seem to get through right now. doesn't mean there's never a time to, to be more direct, but you can be direct and gentle, right? You can be uh, meek and still confident in Christ and share words that are often encouraging, supportive, sometimes challenging, as we'll see because we're called to speak the truth in love. Why? Well, we, we're modeling this after our Savior. Jesus said in Matthew eleven twenty nine, Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for because I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. This is not only in salvation, but we're called to pattern our lives after Jesus uh, lived his life. And Jesus, at times, would, would assert himself, Right? We think, uh, we think uh, of Jesus overturning the tables in the marketplace. What we often fail to remember is Jesus walked by the marketplace. He saw what was happening. He went home. He slept. He came back the next day with a plan. Jesus was not out of control, angered, and emotionally responded and flipping over every table there. No, he walked by and he overturned the tables. He was intentionally communicating a point to this religious society that they were belittling and taking advantage of those who were more poor than they. And he said, this is not happening because my house is a place of prayer. You don't assert yourselves over someone else out of your own pride. We're called to walk with patience, right? God is patient toward us, and that motivates our patient living toward others. Patience comes out in our expectations of others. Patience comes out in the way that we conduct ourselves with others. Patience doesn't also, also does not mean uh, always letting everything go forever. We can be patient, prayerful, humble, lowly of mind, meek, bearing with one another. Forbearing is that word. And it's used often in the context of uh, enduring suffering, enduring persecution. It feels like that, right, sometimes, right? You have somebody in your family and you're trying to practice living a Christ-like life and it feels like you're suffering. feels like I'm undergoing persecution. Good. That's what it's supposed to feel like when we're being patient. But, but as we're patient and we're meek and lowly of heart or mind, we're reminded how patient God is with us. And you know, that distills the emotions of frustration or anger or whatnot that, that begin to come, right? I mean, it's okay for us to be angry, just that we are to be angry at the right things, right? There's godly anger, there's righteous anger, and then there's sinful anger. So when we're angry, whatever the reason, we're not to sin. Walking patiently helps us think circumspectly, helps us balance the scales as we walk in a manner that's worthy of the calling to which we've been called. Paul's not urging us to, this is important, friends, he's not urging us to create unity. 
He's, he's calling us to maintain or to preserve the unity of the Spirit, which already exists through the work of Christ. So we're not trying to create reasons for us to be unified. We're to identify why we are already unified. And this is established by the bond of peace. I said it earlier, when we have peace with God through Jesus Christ alone, then the Lord brings peace horizontally. Now, we still have to work it out. We have to grow in it. We have to understand it. But we are to give ourselves. We're not to float down the river of peacemaking. No, we don't ever float toward Christ-likeness. We don't ever float toward unity. We're to be eager, which means we're to put a spiritual sweat in. We're to exert ourselves to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. And then third, we've got the basis for our Christianity. By the way, all of these say Ephesians 1. You know, I copied and pasted when I was putting these together, and they all say Ephesians 1 in the verses, but it's Ephesians 4. So uh, forgive me for that. But I said already, Peter calls, I mean, Paul calls us to unity, never for the sake of unity, but unity to exalt the name of Christ. And he makes that incredibly clear here as he calls us to unity. There is one body and there is one spirit. There's one body because that's his main concern as he's writing to bring unity or to communicate the unity that Jews and Gentiles are to have with one another. There is one body and one spirit. Just you recall the one hope that belongs to your one call, one hope, just as there is one body and then there is one spirit of God. Similarly, there is one hope, right? And this is a, this is not a subjective feeling. This is not a, a feeling that, you know, if I'm feeling hope-filled for the day, well, then I'll act according to it. But if I'm not feeling hope-filled, well, then I, I just don't really know what to do. I just feel sort of paralyzed. This is not a, a subjective feeling that we're to live according to. This is a, a, a confident assurance based on facts, based on content, based on the reality of what God has done for us. I talk, talked with people at times, they say, well, I just don't really feel loved by God. I said, well, when's the last person that you knew who actually died on a cross for you? Well, let's just pull that back. Who do you know that's come to you and said, Bob, tomorrow I'm going to die for you because I want you to know how much I love you? Well, nobody. Well, Jesus did. You see, that's a fact. It's a historically verified, proven fact. That's the basis for, or to, for us to walk in faith. You see, that hope, that is a confident expectation of the unity that we have in Christ, of the calling to which we've been called. Our future inheritance is guaranteed because of the work that Christ has done, and that's a reality. It's not something that is feelings-driven. But we don't know that if we're not fellowshipping with the Lord in His Word. We begin to become dry. We begin to become, we feel empty because we are inundated with false messages from the world around us. And Paul says, this doesn't need to be happening to you. We're one body, one spirit, and one hope. One Lord who is Jesus Christ. It's important, friends, that when we're talking about the Lord, we talk about the Lord, but we talk about the Lord Jesus Christ. When we talk about God, we want to talk about Jesus Christ because this he is the one, he is the person who differentiates Christianity, biblical Christianity, which I guess is the only Christianity, from every other religion in the world. 
There is no other religion that says, I'm God, this is what I called you to. You can't do it. Oh, I can. So I'm going to send my son to do what you cannot do for yourself. And then willingly, I'm going to deplete myself and give my life on the cross and be raised from the grave three days later by the same power that gives you the ability to walk in a manner worthy of your calling. One Christianity, where we have one God, one Father, and one Lord Jesus Christ. It's, it's the same as uh, when Moses said, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. See, in Paul's day, in ancient Greek, they'd refer to their... Um, Uh, there's a word I'm forgetting, but their leaders, their political leaders as lords, right? And they would use that word. And so Paul is saying, we have one Lord, Jesus Christ, one Lord. We have one faith. I talked about it a little bit already, speaking about the, the reality that the hope that we have isn't a subjective feeling. Faith is not a subjective feeling. Romans, I mean, Hebrews tells us that it's a confident expectation, a confident assurance of things that we can't see. So you should anticipate not always feeling it. You should anticipate that your feelings don't always match what you know to be true and then, and then recondition yourself to go back to the word over and over and over again. It doesn't make you weak. It makes you humble. It makes you real. And it's banked on truth. It's the objective, unchanging truth of the word of God. And one baptism. Now, commentators will, uh, will you know, bicker a little bit or, or discuss whether this is referring to uh, uh, water ba- baptism or, or baptism in the Lord or in the Spirit, but they really are interchangeable in Paul's way of thinking, right? If you're baptized in the Lord, uh, you're, you're not looking for a second baptism, right? Many will talk about being baptized in the Spirit. Other uh, traditions will talk about be ba- being baptized in the Spirit. Well, if you're baptized in the Lord, the Spirit of God indwells you at the moment of your salvation. And then being baptized in water is a, is a visual demonstration of the things that have happened inwardly. It's important. It matters. If you're a Christian and you haven't been baptized, I want to encourage you. It's really an act of obedience that says, I'm, I'm, I'm a child of God, and I want to publicly declare this. It brings accountability into the mix. It brings the relationship of God joining us together through his work accomplished for us. Commentator F.F. Bruce explains it this way. It's beside the point to ask whether it is baptism in water or baptism of the Spirit. It is Christian baptism. It's baptism into the name of the Lord Jesus, which indeed involved the application of water, but was closely associated with the gift of the Spirit. One baptism, and then he says, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. So he, he, is, he is affirming two realities, God's transcendence and God's imminence. God is totally above our capacity to know him and to understand him, and yet he's made himself available to us, not only to know of him, but internally to know him very personally. Do you see how the Trinity is central to Paul's discussion? We see, you know, Trinity is not a Bible using, I mean, a word used in the Bible. We speak about our triune God or the Trinity, but it's a theological word that brings together the reality that we have three persons in one God, a unified God who is overall and is permanently in us and through all and in all. 
This is the faith we as a church profess. And sometimes I'll hear the question, well, shouldn't all churches just worship together? Well, number one, it's just not possible because of all the people and where we live. And, and, and yet there are churches in our area that will not proclaim these doctrinal truths that we've been talking about today and in the last several weeks. Well, every Sunday, I hope. And so we don't worship as everybody who worships a general God. We worship as a church who upholds the authority of Christ Jesus, the only Son of God, not created but given, so that we might have life in Him and then experience the beautiful reality that when, when Jesus needed to leave His earthly ministry, He told the disciples, I need to leave so that the Helper can come. And He sent the Helper to open our eyes to truth, to instruct us, to teach us, and to help, help us walk godly lives. This is what we need, brothers and sisters, if we're going to live and walk in a manner worthy of the very special, very holy, very set-apart calling that God has called us to. <laughs> Heavenly Father, as we consider these realities, as we uh, consider the ways that you've called us to, to exert our energy, exert a spiritual sweat in, in maintaining, not creating, maintaining, preserving the unity that we have in the Spirit of God. We thank you that it's undergirded by rich, rich truth. And may we never live according to what we remember from the Bible, but always be learning and always be growing. Father, as we move into this time where we get to partake of the Lord's Supper, this is not simply a remembrance that you gave your life on the cross and, and rose from the grave, but what you're actually doing as we partake in this together, which is why we do this when we're gathered together as a demonstration of your headship over the body of Christ. We're the body, you're the head. We want to see you exalted above all things. And so, Father, there may be some in this room today who are not professing believers in Jesus Christ. They may have heard about Jesus, but not understood what it means to have a relationship with you. Lord, would you use this biblical imagery, uh, even as they remain seated, uh, as an opportunity to help them examine their own hearts? But, but not only for potential unbelievers, but for believers. May we examine our hearts, not going through any rote motions week to week, week in, week, week out, not considering the, 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 the magnanimous privilege that it is for us to be the body of Christ. Father, there may be things hindering us from worshiping you rightly. And through Jesus, you say, if your brother has something against you, leave your gift at the altar, go and make it right, and then come and offer your gift. Lord, may we examine our hearts as we partake of communion, examining our hearts to know if there's an area where we need to initiate a conversation to pursue reconciliation. We know that those conversations can't be all carried out in this time period, but if there's someone that we smile and nod and then avert our eyes from or if we know they do for us, Father, would you move in our hearts to bring reconciliation that we would not only figuratively but literally walk to them in a manner worthy of our calling, maybe this morning for a few minutes. Lord, there are many things we are thankful for. We, we think about this upcoming week with families, uh, some that we know and, and some that we don't know that will be in here, whose children will be a part of Vacation Bible School. May we even uh, drink of this drink and, and eat of this bread, and then maybe even just form pockets uh, where we would pray for this upcoming VBS. You've called us to, to be together, but just not by proximity in the same room, but to actively live out this Christian faith. So may we pray 
with one another. And it feels uncomfortable, Lord, but we're growing in our humility and in our lowliness of mind and our meekness enough to, that we might be even willing to go over and initiate some prayer this morning for one of many different things in our church. We pray also, Lord, for Jesus proclaiming churches in our communities, Lord, because we want everyone who proclaims the name of Jesus, who exalts you, who lifts you up on high to prosper, to do well. Through that, which you empower. Because you tell us that when we lift up the name of Jesus, you will draw men to yourselves. So may we be hot after that life. May we be pursuing of that mission and vision here and in every church that proclaims the name of Jesus. We pray these things, thankfully, with grateful hearts. In your name, Lord Jesus. Amen.